Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. From us this week, thanks again for listening, folks, and we'll catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hi everyone, Sean here. This is an interlude mini-sode between parts 4 and 5 of the Melbourne gangland killing series, providing some additional context. Today I'll be talking about a few cases occurring in 2006 and a final one in 2009, which are often included in the Melbourne gangland killings timeline. They have a few links with some of the main plays we've discussed throughout, but are essentially unrelated to the main storyline we've focused on. In 1982, the bank robbing business partnership between Lee Tawney and his associate Sidney Graham had soured. They were in the small Yarra Valley town of Wesburn when Lee shot Sidney in the back and killed him. His body wasn't discovered for three months, but when it was, Lee Tawney was in the crosshairs. He was charged and convicted of his associate's murder. In 2003, upon his release, Lee went to live with his mother on her property just outside of Castlemaine. It was a nice quiet spot for Lee to grow some marijuana, report for parole once a fortnight and go about his daily business, which often involved drugs, guns and violence, something his time in prison had not rehabilitated. Lee was friends with George and Carl Williams. It was rumoured, but never proven, that Lee had done some work and provided some introductions for Carl with some main players in the gangland war. But other than that, he by and large kept to his own business dealings, which by April 2004 included a new partnership with a bloke named Graham Holden, nicknamed Bushy due to his love of the great outdoors. Bushy was a carpenter, said to have had a few minor brushes with the law, but was a likeable larrikin, well known in the Castlemaine area and the product of a large local family. He had land in nearby Chewton and it was described as possessing quartz-riddled soil, but the property proved fertile enough for Bushy and Lee to grow a new crop of cannabis. They planted 40 cannabis plants at the rear of the property, agreeing to split the profits 50-50, But in early 2005, Bushy took it upon himself to relocate the plans. 36 of the 40 plans died and Lee was not a happy camper, later telling friends that Bushy was a fucking idiot. Still, they soldiered on with the partnership somewhat and in good time, Lee ended up actually staying in Bushy's house. But it wasn't an amicable situation. Arguments led to Bushy being kicked out of his own house and sleeping in a cave on his own property. Over time, the former friendship eventually boiled over and there was a fight. Lee hit Bushy in the legs with a shovel, but it wasn't enough to stop the Bushman. He fought back with his own shovel, smacking Lee across the back of the head, twice to the left side of the head and then a final blow to the right of his head. The attack killed Lee and Bushy used rope to tie his body to the back of his car and then towed it to an old vacant mine shaft some three to 500 metres away from his house. When he got there, 
He threw the body into the four-metre-deep hole and showered it with rocks and dirt. Rumours and comments from local crooks led to phone taps and then a visit from two undercover officers to Bushy and Lee's body was discovered on the 26th of March 2006. Graham Bushy Holden pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was sentenced to six years jail. Dino Dibra had many friends. Some of those friends allegedly killed him. One who didn't but wound up dead himself in unrelated circumstances was a young man named Michael Dewhurst. In 2006, Michael was 32 years old. He was born in Footscray and had been expelled from Melton High in Year 8. By the age of 19, Michael had wound up in Pentridge's H Division, serving time for a long list of crimes, including drug-related offences, assault and recklessly causing injury. He was jailed for 18 months in June 2001 for his involvement in the Paran Dome nightclub shooting, which Dino Dibra was allegedly involved in too. But late in April of 2006, Michael was stabbed in the street after an altercation with two men in Palmerston Road, Melton. He managed to get into his car and drive 20 metres or so before succumbing to his injuries and passing away. The following day, a man named Craig Vella was arrested and charged with Michael Dewhurst's murder in what the Age newspaper described as a drug deal gone wrong. On the 14th of October 2006, another man named Michael would be much luckier when he was shot once in the rear end and once in the thigh at a house in Albion Street, Brunswick. Michael Eyes Pastris was shot, he survived. He was nicknamed Eyes after receiving a pair of diamond-studded glasses from Carl Williams. Michael and his brother Sav were said to have associations with the Morans and the Mockbells at different times. Whatever the reason for this incident, a couple of interesting things stand out about the victim in this case. Firstly, Michael was named in the confidential police file about Terence Hodgson that was leaked into the underworld. And secondly, he gave evidence at Mick Gatto's murder trial. Michael initially said he'd spoken with Andrew Venyman earlier that day when he was shot, and he hadn't mentioned anything about wanting Mick Gatto dead or seeing a gun on him. But after testifying, Michael Pastris changed his tune and approached members of Piranha, telling detectives that he had seen Benji with a gun when he went to meet Mick, and that Benji told him he wanted the big man dead in the days earlier. Michael stated that Benji had said, I am fucking dirty on Mick Gatto, he has got to go, which shocked him at the time. Despite this revelation, Mick Gatto's defence team chose not to present this drastically different version of events from Michael Pastris as the trial progressed, for reasons we can only speculate on. Who knows if this shooting some two years later was connected to this or not, Whatever the case, Michael Pastris remains alive and hopefully well enough to have made some better acquaintances these days. Fast forwarding to 2009 now, some three years after Mario Condello was gunned down, and the picture was becoming a bit clearer. It was now debated if his murder was related to the gangland war at all, along with the aforementioned cases that occurred in 06 and just seemed to be thrown into the mix because of some loose associations. Desmond Tuppence Moran had returned to Melbourne after leaving for a short time after his brother Lewis's murder. Safe as he might have felt with young Carl Williams behind bars, he wasn't, and he'd be his own family this time trying to do him harm. 
In March of 2009, shots had been fired at him outside his home in Ascot Vale. A bullet flew through the windscreen of his car, which just missed him and his friend in the front seats. Despite the close call, Tuppence claimed he was no longer involved in the criminal world and felt safe enough to continue on with his daily routine, refusing to change things up, much like his dearly departed brother. On the 15th of June 2009, he was shot dead outside the Ascot Pastor and Deli Cafe on Union Road in Ascot Vale. He was shot by two men who fled the scene and escaped in a getaway vehicle. The vehicle was later abandoned and police discovered a rifle in the car and white gloves discarded in bushes nearby. The following day, police arrested Judith Moran, Susie Kane and Geoffrey Armour for the murder. A fourth man, Michael Ferrugia, was later arrested. Judy, Tuppence's sister-in-law, had been under police surveillance when she was arrested and she matched the description of the driver of the getaway car who'd been wearing white gloves. In Judy's home, police discovered a hidden safe containing three handguns, two stolen Victorian licence plates, a wig and clothing which matched witness descriptions of clothing worn by the gunman. Judy was taken into custody and later that night, her home was mysteriously lit on fire in an apparent arson attack. While Judy denied being involved, saying she was visiting her son's grave at the time, it was ultimately discovered she was the getaway driver and the motive for the murder being an ongoing dispute over money between her and her brother-in-law Tuppence. Jeffrey Armour pleaded guilty to the murder of Des Tuppence Moran. His partner, Susie Kane, who was Jason Moran's sister-in-law, was given a two-year suspended sentence for her involvement. Michael Ferrugia pleaded guilty to manslaughter months earlier and became the prosecution's star witness in the case against Judy Moran. It took the jury seven days to find Judy guilty and she was sentenced to 26 years. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And finally, as we tie up all of the loose ends of this saga before we get to the culmination in Part 5, I just wanted to briefly touch on the Lawyer X scandal. While Lawyer X, in former 3838, real name Nicola Gobbo, doesn't directly relate to many of the events in the gangland killings themselves, she did go on to represent a number of the main players, including Carl Williams and Tony Mockbell, and some of the cases she was involved in have had convictions quashed since. We spoke about that of Farouk Orman in a past interlude episode, but there's been others too, including a man who was alleged to be a trafficker of Tony Mockbell's and spent the best part of a decade behind bars. And Tony Mockbell himself had a cocaine trafficking offence overturned, also off the back of this scandal. The Age newspaper had a really good timeline of events on Nicola Gobbo and how and when she became a registered police informer, which I'll run over briefly now. In the 1980s, Nicola Gobbo attended Genazzano College in Kew, a private college for girls. She went on to study law at the University of Melbourne. In October 1991, 
Collingwood footballer Darren Mullane crashed into the back of a semi-trailer at South Melbourne. He had a blood alcohol level of 0.32 when he died. Nicola had spent the night with him at the Tunnel nightclub before he drove off in his car and she appeared as a witness at the coronial inquest into his death. In 1993, Nicola was charged with drug possession when police seized 1.4 kilograms of amphetamines and 350 grams of cannabis at the Carlton Share House where she lived. Two men who lived at the house with her were convicted of drug trafficking while Nicola escaped without a conviction by pleading guilty to possession and use. At the time of her arrest, Nicola was a third-year law student. It was two years later in 1995 that Nicola Gobbo was registered as a police informer, but it wasn't until 10 years later that she was officially given the pseudonym Informer 3838. She made some minor headlines in the late 90s with respect to political affiliations I won't run through, but it was in 1998 at the age of 25 that she was admitted to the Victorian bar and quickly became a prominent defence barrister. She was the youngest woman to do so at this time. In 1999, the Melbourne gangland killings began and into the 2000s, Nicola became Tony Mockbell's lawyer. She also worked on the Silk Miller police murders case, being part of the Debs and Roberts defence teams, and she began a relationship with drug squad detective Sergeant Paul Dale around this time too. September 2002, and Nicola successfully kept Tony Mockbell out of prison after applying for $1 million bail, and Tony actually kissed her on the steps of court in a show of gratitude, and he'd be grateful again in April of 2003 after a major drug lab of his was busted in Rye. Nicola was called in this time as a troubleshooter to stop one of the arrested men confessing and turning on the Mockbells. Early 2004, after representing Rob Caram in the high-profile tomato tin ecstasy bus trial in 2004, Nicola allegedly went on to act as a conduit between drug squad detective Paul Dale and Carl Williams before the murders of Terence and Christine Hodson. But in July, the stress was clearly mounting as Nicola had a stroke at the age of 31 and underwent heart surgery. She was devastated that none of her close clients seemed to really care and after this she wanted to change and began informally talking to the newly formed Piranha Task Force. And this brings us to March of 2006 where Part 5 kicks off next episode. Nicola Gobbo was part of Tony Mockbell's defence team when he fled. Obviously her story goes on well past this point but it's probably outside of the scope of what we're covering. However, from 2014 onwards, when it became evident she was talking with police about some of her own clients, things really snowballed until early 2019, when Nicola Gobbo was publicly identified as Informer 3838. There was a subsequent royal commission surrounding this and Vic Pohl's handling of informants. For our purposes, the main thing to take from this is the potential for a number of cases to be reviewed and overturned upon appeal where Nicola Gobbo has been involved. For the obvious reason that, you know, these defendants may not have received a fair trial when their legal privilege was compromised and things they'd told their defence team in good faith was potentially passed back to police and prosecutors. So we'll see what impact this has on some of these gangland cases in the time to come. That's it for these interlude minisodes, all of the loose ends tied up. We'll have part five of the Melbourne gangland killings to bring this tale home, available for you all tomorrow.